and he kind of is giving his kind of final thoughts, some reminders of things he's mentioned, and uh, just kind of throwing in some things at them. And uh, for that, I have—I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. Maybe you're talking with somebody, and uh, you're really enjoying the conversation. You're both enjoying the conversation. Suddenly, you look at your watch and realize, "Oh man, you know, I've, I've got to get going. I don't have—I can't. I don't really have time." And then, in that moment, it's like all the things that you really needed to tell them kind of pop in your head. Or maybe you're writing an email and you're like already on like page 10 and then you realize, oh, I forgot the main point of what I really wanted to say in this email. So you kind of squeeze that in in a paragraph at the end. We've all been there. Now, Paul is writing this at a time when it took quite some time for a letter to arrive at its destination. And so you kind of have to really be thinking about getting the information that you want to the people you want to send it to. And I get the feeling, this is just my interpretation, that here in in Paul's final exhortation to the Philippians, it's almost like he's running out of paper or something. Like he was, maybe he only had so much paper or maybe he only had so much time to write, we don't know. But he throws in so much here in this, at the end of this uh, letter. He touches on some big topics, uh, but only briefly. And again, he kind of reminds us of some things that we've already covered. So if this is your first week joining us in, the, in this letter, this will be a great week to join us. We're going to kind of get to get a little bit of a review of everything because he touches on all the things that he's already touched on, as well as throwing in some other huge topics just loosely at the end, kind of like, hey, and remember this and don't forget about this kind of feeling. And so, but it's important things important things for us to understand. And there's a line that does go throughout this chapter, as well as throughout the entire letter, which is why we are calling our, uh, this series Christ and Everything. And it's all about a Christ-centered life. And that's what we're going to be kind of titling the, the sermon for today, A Christ-Centered Life. And how do we live that? It's this kind of reflective look at a life lived with Christ. And as we've looked at over the last few weeks, when Christ is our ultimate prize, the thing that we're ultimately seeking, our ultimate treasure, that it kind of determines a lot of how we see different things in our lives. And a key element of this particular chapter that we see, again, all through the letter, is joy. Paul is so full of joy. He's rejoicing all the time. Again and again, we'll see in this text today. And... His joy, again, is coming from this, this time where he's writing this, where he's chained to a soldier in prison, and he's just so excited about what God had been doing in the, to, with the Philippians and what God was doing in him and through him, and we're going to look at how to have this joy. And in the typical Paul fashion here of this last chapter, we're going to look at it in a few different points. So we're going to go through... Uh, five points in the end. We're going to go through five different points that Paul kind of, I think, emphasizes the most. And we'll kind of go through all these, always keeping in mind that this is practical living for a Christ-centered life. And that's what should be our ultimate goal today as believers. Before we dive into verse 1 of chapter 4, let's just take a minute and pray over this time. Father, we want to always start by thanking you that we can gather here today, that we can be here uh, united together, united to you, 
and looking at your word, something that we can hold in our hands and study and, and seek to understand you and your ways better and seek to understand the way that you are calling us to live today. Father, I pray that all of our hearts would be open, that none of us would leave here today without hearing a word from you, without having an experience, an encounter with you in your word today. We know that, Father, in your presence that we are transformed. And so I pray that that is true for all of us. And I pray for myself that you would uh, just put your truth on my lips. Open my heart, Father, to what you want to have spoken from your word as we go through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's dive in. Verse 1, we'll start there. Seems like a good place to start. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom... You whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. So here we see this, therefore, he's used this many times throughout the text, and it's this kind of transitional word, and uh, he could be referring to all of the things that he's talked about before, he could be referring to the things that he's about to get into, I think it's probably both, knowing Paul especially as often as he uses these kinds of kind of uh, transitioning words. And so as he's kind of beginning his conclusion, I think he's saying, live this way. All the things that we've looked at and as he's getting into his final conclusion. And this crown, I think, is important because it, it demonstrates, and we've seen this all through the letter. I've mentioned before that this is the kind of letter you want to receive, especially from Paul. I mean, if I walked to my mailbox and had a letter like this, I would be really encouraged, especially to get it from someone like Paul, who's so kind of ultimately pleased with the way that things are going there in Philippi. And he calls them his crown. And this is kind of, a, it, it's, a, it's an, a, obviously an image of a reward. And his reward is seeing them following Christ, seeing them, seeing the work that God is doing in them. And this is, an, again, an echo from what he said in chapter 2, which I want to reread. So we can kind of keep this all in line. Verse 17 of chapter 2. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from you, coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So even if I am completely spent, if I give everything I have, but you're faithful, but you're walking with the Lord, man, that's a crown. It's something I rejoice in. He's excited about it. And especially if we look at these two verses together, that even in the midst of his suffering and all that he's been through, uh, he still sees the Philippians as this great crown as their, as their faithfulness continues and goes on to the end as we looked at last week. Our prize is eternity with Jesus. And the goal is to stay the course. The goal is to just keep faithfully moving to that end. Now again, as I mentioned, we have points today. So with the rest of this text, we're going to be going through five different points. So uh, if you're a note taker, this is a great uh, note taking kind of sermon. And uh, if you're not, it's a great time to start taking notes. So, uh, and again, these are just, I know that there's going to be more in the text and there's some things that we could go in deeper with, but there's a lot of things that we've already kind of looked at over, the, over this series And these were kind of what God, I think, put on my heart as I read through the text. Number one, our first point, is unity. Unity, standing together for the gospel. Now, we've talked a lot about unity, 
I'm going to have a subtitle of this, even with those we don't necessarily get along with. And let's dive into the text. Verse 2 and 3. And forgive me for the names. I'll do my best. I plead with Yodia. Yoda? Well, it's like, it looks, it looks like Yoda to me. Yodia? We'll, we'll go with that. And I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, to whoever he was addressing this uh, prominently, help those women since they have uh, contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the, uh, who are, names are in the book of life and the, that meaning that they're God's children, that they are, this is kind of something we see a lot in the Old Testament, the book of life that God writes the names of those who belong to him. So they're Christians they're people who are following Christ, and they've, he's worked with them. He knows these women and all of those in that uh, group. And he's saying, I, I, I remember working with them. And we don't know what the issue was. We don't know what they were arguing about, what they were bickering about. He doesn't address it directly. He doesn't kind of point it out, which to me means two things. One, it was serious enough that it got all the way to Paul, who was like miles away, and it would have taken, you know... So much time for this message to get to him, and still, it was like a big enough issue in the church. It was causing enough of a ruckus, if you will, that they felt they needed to get Paul's advice on it. But it also shows us that the issue itself was not significant to Paul. Whatever it was in itself didn't really matter. He's saying, move past it. Whatever it is, move past it. There's an importance in unity. And this is, again, an echo from what he says in chapter 2. Verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. We talked about when we looked at chapter 2 that this doesn't mean that we're, we need to be exactly the same. We don't need to be, of, be the same mind. We need to be of the same mind, and that is about the gospel. It's about what we're focused on, where we're headed. We're all going together to the same eternity the same direction and so we want to be united in this and there's an importance and a calling for us to love one another we don't have to always like one another because we're all very different people some of you are going to be really easily going to connect with some people really easily and others it's going to be more of a challenge we don't have to like each other all the time but we do have to love each other We're called to be a family of God. We are all children of God, siblings. And as such, we don't have to always like it. I I haven't always liked my sister. Hope she doesn't hear this. But I do love her. You know, we don't have to always like each other, but we do have to love each other. And there's an importance in that. And here's a thought for you guys when it comes to loving one another. uh, I know that we all have people in our lives that we think, what's wrong with them? They are just, something is just not quite right there and we can't connect with them or we might have trouble with certain people. That's normal. That's human. But here's a thought. Jesus loves you and he knows you. He knows who you really are. He knows the times that you make mistakes. He knows how annoying you can be sometimes. 
and he loves you and he accepts you completely and, and, and fully. And I'm, I'm reminded of uh, what we see in, in John 13. I won't read it, but you might know the story. Jesus is with the disciples and he's been their leader. They've called him Lord and teacher and he gets down on his knees and washes their feet. How amazing is it that Jesus, Lord of all, Creator, God, Savior, would wash his disciples' feet. And then it gets really challenging because he doesn't say, you know, now come and, and, and wash my feet. That would have been easy for them. That would have been easy. Yeah, you're Lord, you're Savior. It's an honor to wash your feet. But he says, now wash each other's feet. That is more challenging, especially after a long day, maybe going hiking. Nobody's got nice feet after that. I don't want to wash anybody's feet. But God, Jesus says, hey, I'm Lord. I'm, I'm the teacher. I'm your master. And I'm going to wash your feet as an example for you to wash each other's feet. Do this to each other. This deep need to be united and to love one another through everything. Even the people who aren't as lovable as others. So in light of that, in light of a, a Lord, a Savior, washing, washing the disciples' feet and humbling himself, sacrificing himself for our sins, dying on a cross, in light of that, that he loves you even though he knows you and accepts you even though he sees everything that you are. Can't we get along? Can't we all just get along? I know that this is a particularly important subject in churches. There is any, a church of... Uh, I've been in several different churches in my life. I've been in really, really small churches and I've been in really big churches in the States. And that issue is over... There is no exceptions. There's always going to be, as we see here with these two ladies, there's always going to be people who just don't get along, who just seem to bump each other all the time. And Paul's pleading with them, come on, guys. Issue isn't what matters. Unity is what matters. Being, loving one another is what matters. Being family. So, wow, we're on the first point. We need to really get going, guys. And I do want to just touch really quick, in verse 3, he says, my true companion, and he kind of calls them, calls this person, whoever, we don't know who that is, or if it's a specific person, to help them. And so I would say, when we have issues with people, when we're really bumping with somebody, and you're like, you know, you're tempted to talk bad about them, you're tempted to kind of uh, maybe cause strife between them, Find somebody, find a true friend, find a true companion to help you in that situation for the sake of unity, for the sake of the church. Uh, I'm reminded of what we read, that, uh, something Solomon wrote, uh, that a fly in the perfume spoils the whole batch. And I believe that a little strife can affect an entire church. Clearly, this, whatever this issue was, was affecting the whole church to the point that the message got all the way to Paul. And no matter how little it might seem, we want to just root those things out immediately. So I encourage you to do that. And if you need help, find help. I know my wife, Rebecca, and me, we're always available. I hope that's really clear to everybody. We're always available to have conversations, to work through those things with people. 
but there are also a lot of people in the team here that, are, that were really qualified to help in those situations. But don't let it to fester in your heart. Deal with it for the sake of unity. So that is point number one. We want to be unified in Christ for the sake of the gospel. As Christ, as we are unified to Christ with him, we are also unified with one another. We're connected with one another. We are a family. And so we want to keep that always in the forefront of our minds. Point number two, as we're going to read in uh, uh, verse four through seven. And the point is going to be, don't be anxious. Pray. Let's read the text. And here we see Paul's joyous emotion coming out. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to the Lord, or to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, rejoice in the Lord. Again, rejoice. We see this deep joy that, that Paul has, even as he's in chains. And we're going to get more into that uh, in our fourth point. But first, what I want to point out is I think it's safe to say that nobody here likes to be anxious. No one enjoys anxiety. As somebody who's had a lot of anxiety in their lives, as I've shared before, I used to have a crippling anxiety of public speaking. God is still working on. And no one likes that. No one likes to be anxious about the fear of the future or whatever it might be. And joy, to have joy instead, to be rejoicing as Paul is, sounds much better. So how do we give up anxiety? How do we release that and take up joy instead? Paul here, he's kind of, there's a lot of echoing. I'm using that word too much, I see now. But uh, he's kind of going or referring to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we can read that in Matthew six thirty-three through 34. This is a verse actually I shared a couple of weeks ago in, with the offering. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So we don't, the beginning of this is don't be focused on tomorrow or the worries of tomorrow. They're going to be there waiting for you. But seek first his kingdom. This is again about our aim, our ultimate goal, and his righteousness. So how do we do that practically? I think first in knowing where our help comes from. Knowing what has that ability to take away that anxiety. That Christ alone, as we come to him in prayer, is our savior even of these things. And Paul adds this to this thought that we should bring our worries, our troubles, our anxieties, that we don't need to be anxious, our needs, our requests, which is all-encompassing, all of our requests, to the Lord with thanksgiving, with uh, just already being thankful to him as our savior, as our Lord. And this simply is just trusting in him 
as we come to him with thanksgiving, we're saying just already right at the beginning that I trust you. I trust in you as my provider, my provider of peace, my provider of joy, my provider of strength and all of my needs. In James 5.13, he lays it out really simple for us. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. I love this. So James always, it's such a simple, lays it down, cut and dry. It's really that simple. Let your worries lead you to pray. Let your worries lead you to a savior. Let your worries lead you to petitioning and praying with thanksgiving to God. That's where your worries should be leading you. Worries typically lead us to what? More worrying. We worry and it causes us to worry more and then it just kind of spirals out of control really quickly. Don't let your worries lead to more worrying. Let them lead to prayer. And this, if we look at James' verse, this leads then, as we, as we see that work, as we see, as we become thankful for God, for who he is, and we begin to, as Paul, rejoice again, rejoice in the Lord, then our anxiety that's led us to prayer then leads to singing. Literally, if you want, you can just start singing. Rejoicing, singing praises to God. This is how we go from anxious to rejoicing it's all in what we're led to in those moments led to prayer led to god as the only one who's really capable of taking care of those things which leads to rejoicing and one of my i'll leave you guys with this point we'll move through it quickly this is a verse that comforts me often in all times of trouble in matthew eleven twenty eight, jesus comforts us with these words Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. There is the answer. The, to me, the opposite of anxious, anxiety, is rest. And that's what Christ offers. So, don't let your anxieties lead to more anxieties. Let them lead you to joy. Let them lead you to Jesus who offers rest when we lay those things at his feet. He replaces them with rest. So, next point. Point number three. The battle of the mind. And this is going to be verse 8 through 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the Lord of peace will be with you. And that last verse we see a lot, we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago and, and how Paul uh, is, is kind of sets himself as an example and he says, hey, follow me, follow my lead 
in what I'm doing. And we too want to seek that for our own lives, that we become people that can say that, hey, follow my lead. Not that we're perfect, but that that is our goal, that we put into practice is the key element of that verse, that we put into practice what we know and what God has revealed to us. But I really want to focus on this battle of the mind, that there's this battlefield that we're always on, and in many ways it's the one that directs our lives the most. It's the direction of our lives is kind of won and lost in this battlefield of our mind. Have you ever just let your mind wander aimlessly? That can be dangerous. If we let our minds kind of wander aimlessly, sometimes they lead us down to bizarre paths, sometimes dangerous ones. And there is something serious in kind of guarding our minds and what we're allowing ourselves to dwell on. I'm not talking about thoughts that pop in your head or, or whatever. I'm talking about really meditating and dwelling on thoughts that can be devastating in the long run and determine the ultimate direction of our lives. And if you think, okay, well, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, I don't know, it sounds a little bit flowery. I'm not really sure exactly what he's trying to say here. And the simple question is, when it comes to our thoughts and what we're dwelling on in our minds, is this thought glorifying of God? Is this something that is going to bring God glory? And not necessarily, doesn't, I'm not talking about, you know, every single thought, you know, should I have spaghetti for dinner or hot dogs? You know, is this glorifying of God? Now I don't know. But I think we can kind of add to that is where is this thought leading to? If I meditate on this thought, if I continue to think about this, if I continue to meditate on this, where is it leading to? Jesus warns us, too, of thoughts. He even mentions that if we look at someone who's not our spouse lustfully, that it's the same as adultery. He puts the weight of our minds into a totally another level, that it's beyond just our actions. But when we're really meditating on something, that it actually has a power to it, and we need to be careful. In 1 John three fifteen, I won't read, but... Uh, John warns us that if you hate somebody, if you hate a fellow Christian, if you hate a brother or sister, that's murder. You're committing murder by hating that person. That is harsh wording. It seems like a a little bit too strong for, I mean, we're, we're talking about just thoughts here, right? But we must guard our hearts. We know that. And a lot of what is happening in our heart is determined by what we're focusing on with our minds. Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, gives us a little bit of a, a tool to use in this. We diminish arguments and every petition that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So there's the key. We take these thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. So we don't want to allow ourselves to be meditating, to be thinking hard and long on things that can be dangerous. So when you find yourself hating somebody, and this goes back to our first point, 
maybe, uh, again, we don't have to all like each other all the time, but if you're really just boiling over one person and it's turning into hatred and you're allowing that thought to control you and to control how you feel, well, it'll start to, it'll start to work its way into your heart and that'll start to work its way into the way you live your life. And man, there are people who've allowed a thought, a hatred to grow to the point of maybe never speaking to a family member again, to maybe going in a completely different direction in their lives because of this hatred for this one person that they've just let have too much control in their thought life. It begins in the thought life. So when we have these thoughts that we know are dangerous, we want to take them captive. Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, who we know is what? Love, who's grace, who accepts us as we are. And if he loves us, then how much more should we love one another? And then that hate starts to melt away and it doesn't really make sense when we take it to Christ and make it obedient to him and who he is. So this same principle applies when we're having an inappropriate thought about somebody. Or when your worry starts to spiral into doubt and out of control because you're just meditating on it, on worry or, or thoughts of depression or self-hatred. This is another huge one that a lot of us will face at some point in our lives, especially in the midst of hardship and things that are really a struggle in our lives. We might start to look at ourselves as insignificant and hate ourselves and Man, the devil loves this. He loves it when we have these thoughts and he just wants us to run with those thoughts and reminds us of all the other bad things people have said about us and the things that our, maybe our parents said about us or the things that a teacher said about us, all the negative things we've ever heard. And he wants us to spiral that out of control into self-hatred till we feel so miserable. No, we have to take that thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And when it's obedient to Christ, it melts away because we know that Christ loves us. We know we are the righteousness of God in Christ through His sacrifice, not through anything that I did. I know that I'm not worthy. I know that I'm not good enough. I don't have to be. We take those thoughts captive. Don't let them fester. Don't let them grow. You know, it's easy... Uh, I love gardening. It's really easy to pull the weeds when they first start to sprout. But if you let them sit and you let them get tall, those roots go in deep. The longer we let a thought control us and we don't take it captive, the harder we're going to have to pull to get it out. So I encourage you, when those thoughts pop in your head, give them to Christ. Take them captive. Bring them to Him. Lay them at His feet. Don't be anxious. Go to Him in prayer. Bring that request to him. So, where were we? Point number three. Now we're on point number four. And this all ties in together. Contentment is a strength from the Lord. That's point number four. Contentment is a strength of the Lord, from the Lord. Verse 10 through 13. I rejoiced 
greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So he's referring to that, uh, you know, he's this guy who had come and was staying with him at the time when, and he sent the letter back with. So he's glad that they finally were able to do that. Verse 11, I am, not, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know, that it is to be, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now that last verse, most Christians will have heard. It is quoted all the time. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's a great verse. It's powerful. It's impactful. One that we should remember and know in our hearts. But I want to be clear because I feel like this is a verse we have to be careful with because we need to understand it in its context. What is Paul saying here? Uh, we, it doesn't mean uh, that we can do anything we want. What, what is he talking about? Well, he gives it, he lays it out for us. He said, I, what are all things? His all things are the times when he had plenty, when he had more than he needed. And it was the times when he was in need. It was the times when he was well-fed, the table was full, and the times when he was hungry. So he's lived with plenty, and he's lived in want. And he's saying, I can do all of this stuff because Christ is the one who strengthens me. It's a powerful statement. Through God, who gives us strength, we can live in obedience to him, to Christ, and in service to one another as we're unified in Christ through any and all circumstances that we may face in our lives. So contentment is a strength from the Lord. It's through him that we can stand and face anything that comes our way, whatever that circumstance may be. And in verse 10, he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Whatever the circumstances, I've learned to be content. So what does that mean for us? Are we today, are you today content with where you are, with what you have, trusting not in the situation, this is the key here, not trusting in the situation, whether it's really good or really bad, but trusting in the Lord. Looking to the Lord as your strength, not your circumstances, not the the situation you're in. Now I want to be clear, contentment does not mean complacent. What I mean by that is that we need to keep moving in our lives. There's, this isn't about, well, you know, this is what I have. I'm content. I'm going to stay here forever. It's not what Paul is saying. We need to keep moving. We walk with Christ. He uses the, he uses the, the uh, image of a race. So we're not just walking. We're running. And we want to run as hard and as fast as we can. We're running to win. Right? We have a goal to continue with Christ to the end. We're headed for a prize, eternity with Christ. So we don't want to be 
complacent. We don't want to be just satisfied with where we are in the sense that we never want to move forward. But there is a wisdom in being content with what God has blessed us with. We're on this path, right? We're walking the path. Here's the image. We have a prize, eternity with our Savior. That's what's ultimately in the distance. And we have a goal. The goal is to keep moving forward all the way to till we reach that prize, step by step, day by day, always moving forward. And we have a strength. And the strength is the joy of the Lord, right? The joy of the Lord is our strength. And this is the strength to be content no matter at which point of the journey you're on. That's the key here. We don't want to be satisfied in the sense that I don't ever want to move, but I want to be content with who God is and where God and what and my relationship with him and what God has blessed me with here and also here and also here as I move ever closer to that ultimate prize. So that's what contentment is. And that is something that is a strength from the Lord because it's so easy for us to get stuck in a moment. And there are two dangers of getting stuck in a moment. The moments that are really good and the moments that are really bad. When things are going really, really well, we're kind of like, I don't really want to move forward. I'm, I'm happy here. Things are going pretty well. I had this experience when God first called me to Germany almost uh, over seven years ago now. I was doing pretty good. I didn't really want to go. <laughs> I didn't want to leave the way that things were. I you know, had a pretty good job, and I was in a few bands, and you know, I had a lot of friends, and my family was there, and God was like, and I didn't know a word of German. It would, didn't even make sense in my mind. Things were good. It was hard to move out of that. And sometimes we can get stuck when things are good because it's like, God, you... I'm content with, we're, you know, hallelujah, I'm content. Just staying right here, content. But that becomes complacent. And we don't want to be stuck. And the other side is when things are really bad. And when things are really bad, we can feel like we, maybe it's, maybe it's something that we messed up. And so we feel like we don't deserve to move forward. Or maybe it's something that's coming from the outside. And we think, I can't see myself ever getting out of this situation. I can't see myself ever being able to move past this. And we can get stuck there. And it's easy to become complacent and not feel like moving forward. But we want to keep moving forward and be content with the strength that Christ has given us for whatever situation we're in. And I think a big part of that contentment is the joy that comes from the Lord and the strength to keep moving. Whether we're in a really good place or in a really bad. We want to keep our eyes on the prize, being content with what God has given us as we move ever forward, ever closer to that prize, as we pass through all of the different seasons that we're going to go through, all of the good seasons, all of the rough seasons, always moving forward in contentment. Our last point, point number five, uh, is investment in the kingdom, investment in his kingdom, investment in his kingdom. And here Paul is just giving thanks for their gifts that they've invested and supported him over the years and he's just kind of lavishing his thanks 
and uh, just how grateful he is to them. So we'll read verse 14 through 19. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Now that troubles is spiritual troubles that they had been facing. It was oppression that they had been facing from uh, the people in uh, Philippi uh, from that were you know, not loving this whole Christian movement. And then also the sharing is also connected with the financial load that they were uh, supporting him. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your um, acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. So they had been supporting him from the beginning of his ministering, of his call in that, to that region, in that area. Verse 16, For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from, oh man, Epaphrodius. We'll, we'll just call him Epi. That was, that was his nickname. The gifts you sent. And this is the guy that had come uh, and was staying with Paul uh, in prison and kind of had brought the news to him and, and also the one that would have brought this letter back to the people of Philippi. They are a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. Verse 19, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. Another famous verse. I want to start with verse 17. Paul makes it clear here that it's not about getting their money. It's not about the gift itself. It's not that he, was, he's, he knows who supplies his needs. It's not them. It's ultimately God. And God had used them. And Paul sees that really clearly. And so in this, his greater hope for them is that there would be a fruit in their lives, that these things would be credited to them. And he doesn't mean that, that you know, he wants to broadcast it to everybody, oh, these guys give the most money. That's not what he meant. Not credited to them amongst men in the natural. He meant credited to them to God, that God would bless them, that God would, would see their hearts in this. And that it would produce fruit because this is an act of worship. As they're giving and supporting him, they're becoming a part of what God is doing through Paul. And in this, he is hoping for them to, the God to return that and, and to bless them. And Paul here in verse 18 is alluding to some interesting Old Testament language where he says this fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. This was used... Uh, this was language used a lot in the Old Testament referring to the offerings that were required. And of course, this has all been abolished with. But the fact that he alludes to this, I think, is, is not just on accident. It kind of is a reminder of this kind of greater thing that's happening. That as they are giving, as they're supporting uh, the, the ministry of Paul, they're ultimately giving to God. They're not giving to a ministry. They're not giving to a person. They're giving it to God, and God sees it. God sees it as a fragrant offering. God sees it as something beautiful and wonderful, and uh, that 
because it wasn't, it's not mandatory. We're not, uh, in the New Testament, we're not, you know, directly required to give any uh, specific amount, like in the Old Testament where they had the tenth that was required by the law. It's all a free will giving. It's all a free will. It's something that when we have it on our heart and we want to invest and we want to be a part of something, that is what it is all about. And we're doing that, we're giving that to God directly, not to any individual. And the cool thing about this is that, that God would allow us to, to be a part of that, that God would allow us to be so intimately included in his greater plan for his kingdom. And Paul kind of is tagging on to this in verse 19, yeah, verse 19, that as we, are, as we open our hearts and out of our own free will, we're generous toward God and what he's doing and we kind of embrace stepping into being a part of uh, being included in what his in the furthering of his kingdom here on the earth, that God is faithful to bless us, and I think the key thing here is that uh, with this verse, I want to kind of also attach a, a little bit of the negative context that I think sometimes uh, is drawn out of it, and that God is not in any way saying that He has some sort of deal with us that if we give, He's going to give us get us rich, or that we're going to be able to you know, be lavished uh, with, you know, loads of money or whatever. That is not what the, it doesn't fit with the context, especially if we look at what Paul said earlier. But he will supply all that we need. He will supply all that we need. And if we looked back further in that verse we read earlier about not worrying about tomorrow, we see that he goes through that God makes sure that the, the fields are dressed with the flowers. He sees a, a bird fall. He knows the hairs of our head. We see all of these uh, images that are used throughout the Bible. How much more is he going to take care of our needs? You know, how much more is he going to make sure that we, our needs are met? And that doesn't mean our wants. It doesn't mean that we get everything we want. It's not a magic formula. If I give this much this month and this much this month, then I should, God will owe me. doesn't work that way. God doesn't owe us anything. Everything is a gift, but he's gracious. And as he, he loves to bless us when we love to bless him. As we worship him, as we kind of open our hearts to him, he is quick to flood us with all that we need. So I'll end with uh, reading the last of the verses. First, uh, I'll read verse 20. We see a typical kind of closing uh, for Paul. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So what's the ultimate point of everything? (laughs) To glorify God. To see God glorified. And this is what a Christ-centered life ultimately does. Everything that Christ did was in obedience to the Father. And everything he did was to glorify the Father. And that is what all of the point, the, the head of everything, is to bring glory to God. And his final greeting, again just showing us how excited he was about these people as he kind of throws out his final greetings in verse 21 and 20 through 23. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send their greetings. 
All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, be with your spirit. Amen. Now, in final closing, I'll just do a quick kind of recap these points as the band comes up. That number one, we want to have unity. We want to be standing together. We're a family. We're called to love one another, even though we don't always get along. We don't always like each other. We have to love each other. It's so important. As Christ is unified with us and loves us and accepts us, how much more should we accept one another? And that we don't need to be anxious about anything, but we can give everything to Christ in prayer, who's quick to love us. And that we have this battle, number three, the battle of the mind. And I believe that all of us have thoughts that we need to, as the verse said, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. I encourage you, this week, take that to heart. Don't let those thoughts get away from you. Take them captive. And number four, that contentment is a strength from the Lord. We don't want to be complacent. We want to keep moving forward, but we can endure everything that we face through Christ who strengthens us. And we are called, we are invited, rather, to invest in God's kingdom and the furthering of his kingdom here. So we want to worship God with our one last song we're going to sing. I invite you guys to stand and worship. And uh, we want to make Christ the center at the end of this service as well.